All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. We are back at it again, just the two of us. It's me and Robert. We can make it if we try. We've had guests on for so long before tonight, but tonight it's just me and my co-host, my buddy, my pal, Robert Johnson. How you doing? You know, Daniel, I'm glad you asked, because I am doing fabulous. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Well, I'm doing well in a relative sense. Like, earlier today and for the past week or two, I've been feeling a little despondent and, like... A $5 word. Lacking focus and direction, not making progress in anything in particular, mm. and uh, feeling the effects of that. But, Aimless. But uh, having our pre-show discussion with you, which is available for our pre-show Patreon supporters... Uh, I've perked up. You have lifted really? me from my phone. I did. I I, I turned it around. You're in the doldrums, and now you got you got you got rudder. You got your heading. You're yeah. on your way. You're you're like the magic man. You got you got that touch, man. Oh shit. So yeah, yeah. And if uh, you know if if we want to continue that trend, uh, let's get some more Patreon people on there. So actuallyanarchy.com/slash/patreon. Or how else can they help us out with the show? I know there's a couple of ways. They can um, tell their friends about us. They can rate us they could buy a shirt from com. they could do all kinds of stuff but mostly you could rate us on like itunes or like you know tell people word of mouth is really hot it's so hot right now yeah or give us comments uh in the areas where comments go like on the facebook.com slash actual anarchy or youtube.com slash actual anarchy uh those are good things to do and you can also check out and leave comments at actualanarchy.com slash 143, which is the show notes page for this episode on Molly's Game. Right on cue. Molly's Game! Right on it's cue. Right on cue. It's a game of, game of uh, poker, chance, skill, it's gambling. Not Thrones. No. I mean, there's less murder, Beheadings. less nudity in this movie. It's still decent, though. There's There's stuff going on. Yeah. Some yeah, drama. Yeah. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll get into the uh, last night's portion of the show and okay. get into it proper style. All right. All right. Here we go. Hey, everyone. It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson, Last Nighters. And Last Nighters are part of the Launchpad Media where they're always launching new ideas in your direction, check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Our show comes out on Monday, but there are other shows coming out every other day of the week, and most of them are damn sight better than this one, but you're here and listening to us, so we appreciate that all the more. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Molly's Game. We're getting our poker face on to talk about this story of a driven former Olympic-level athlete who had a horrific accident and devoted 
uh, her intense focused energy on becoming a success in other somewhat nefarious ways. Uh, what? My, what? So my co-host is Robert. He is here, and yep. he is our guest. We have no guest. Uh, I'm your we, guest. We often have guests, but tonight it's just the two of us. And it's been a uh, long time. It has been a long time, and I think it's, so it's nice to pepper this in every now and again because I think our um, natural camaraderie, or I don't even know if it's natural. It's like it's been a skill, or it's been a a, a long enough period of time and enough. Uh, Familiarity, familiarity, hatred, and tenure, to sexuality, tension, sexual tension, to make mm-hmm. it. <laughs> if we try uh, to kind of have a nice repartee, mm. throwing all these words around mm. tonight. You spend a lot of money on words tonight. <laughs> I'm, I'm running low. Cash money in the bank is getting low <laughs> for this uh, episode 86. We're so 86 to it's almost 87. Um, and by the way, next week uh, we do already know what we're going to be doing. It is going to be. The Warriors. Yes, the Warriors. And I have a special, hopefully we'll be able to do video because I have a special wardrobe for that episode. I was digging through my closet as I'm preparing to leave, moved out of this house. And I found an old leather jacket that I had in high school. And it's the kind of leather jacket that you would need if you were going to get into a rumble and you had just like a a length of metal chain or maybe like a baseball bat with a nail in it or I don't know, like a chair or something. You, you, it's not, I guess if you were a motorcycle rider, it'd be okay. Or if you were getting into a rumble. So I'll be wearing that uh, next week. Okay. But it doesn't fit in with my normal wardrobe. I, I don't know. Shocking. I suppose. All right. Well tune in next week. And if you are a Patreon supporter, sometimes we get the live stream to work. Not tonight, unfortunately. <laughs> but you'll be able to see video of this uh, wardrobe change from Robert for the Warriors. Also, our guest will be Mike C., a returning guest who is a lot of fun. And it's one of his favorite movies. And, and by favorite, I mean with a U because he's Canadian. What does Canadian have to do with anything about it? You spell everything with a U in Canada, except Canada, apparently. But Warriors? Canadians? Favorite. Favor mm, okay. it. I'm not sure how they pronounce yeah. it. Hey, nobody knows. But anyway, this is uh, episode 86, as I was saying. So lastnighter.com slash 86 for show notes and more. Uh, do give us subscribes or uh, ratings and reviews on the old iTunes. That helps raise our profile and get us in front of more eyeburs, which is how my four-year-old calls eyeballs. Um, but I think we want earburs, ear earballs, something like that. Anyway. I'm just I'm just uh, making shit up at this point. Go with it, man. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get into the Google description, how we usually start these things off. Molly's Game came out in 2017. Apparently had an NC-17 rating, according to El Google. Um, I'm surprised by that. Or what? Yeah, I don't know. Let's, that might be a discussion point later on. But it is a drama slash crime film, 2 hours, 21 minutes. Got 7.5 on that IMDb, 81% Rotten Tomatoes, 3 out of 4 from the corpse of Roger Ebert, and 86% of Google users like it. The description. Nice to know that Zombie Ebert still getting work. <laughs> I appreciate that. He's still uh, he's still out there, still watching films, still giving his uh, his two cents. It's uh, it's pretty uh, pretty amazing. I think he's let the man rest, unless he just wants to work. I mean, in that sense, you know, go for it, do what you want to do. Give me a Walmart greeter at this point. All um, right. 
Here's the description. It says, The true story of Molly Bloom, a beautiful, young, Olympic-class skier who ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game for a decade before being arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents wielding automatic weapons. Her players included Hollywood royalty, sports stars, business titans, and finally, unbeknown to her, the Russian mob. Her only ally was her criminal defense lawyer, played by James Bond himself, Idris Elba. Uh, Charlie Jaffe is the lawyer's name. Uh, who learned there was much, much more to Molly than the tabloids led people to believe. Came out on January 11, 2018 in Russia. Director is Aaron Sorkin and the box office of $59.3 million. Uh, screenplay Aaron Sorkin. Nominations for Best Writing Adapted Screenplay, etc. Um, I half expected uh, Stringer Bell and President Bartlett to show up in this one. Your take so far, Robert. Why does that name sound familiar? Stringer Bell. What is that from? That's some reference. The Have Wire. Done something? The Wire. Oh, yeah. That's his character. Idris Elba's character was Stringer Bell. That's right. Okay. Well, I just have one quibble. I mean, it's a fair recounting of the film. The movie jumps around a bit in time, starting off when she's just a kid and going back and forth. But um, the... Uh, description says that it, she ran the most exclusive game in the world. And that's just, just a ridiculous statement. There are games in Macau where the buy-in is like a million dollars when the blinds are $5,000 and $10,000. And trying to get into one of those games is not easy. Probably way harder than her game. Although her game was very, I mean, I'm not going to, Poo-poo it. It's very exclusive. She did a great job trying to find, you know, a mix of celebrities and then guys with a lot of money that, you know, could feed those celebrities. And the, the game seemed pretty lively. So in that sense, it's pretty accurate. I thought she did a great job for the most part. I mean, other than getting addicted to all kinds of drugs, I thought she kind of overextended herself strategically. But, you know. I guess that's what you do when you're uh, living the lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's uh, an interesting situation she found herself in, and there's a few different facets that I want to discuss with you. Um, one of the keys being that she tried to do everything, quote-unquote, above board. Like, she checked with legal counsel before even putting this thing together, and she was kind of fudging the line a little bit, or the the law was a bit ambiguous. And really open to interpretation and, you know, subjective opinion. <laughs> but she tried. Shocking. To, she tried to stay on the on the side of not getting into legal trouble. And I, I I guess I don't understand like why what casinos do all day long is <laughs> illegal for someone else to do. Um, and that was you know she she could do this for tips and that was fine that was above board. But as soon as she charged a fee like a rake, right? That was like a percentage of a pot uh, to, Correct. for running the game. Somehow, uh-oh, alarm bells, criminal activity has now occurred. Right, and she only did that to mitigate the risk of having to cover in case of default, where she's the house, and she's on the hook, essentially, for all pots, right? So you go to one of these games, you buy in, you, you're, you pay, like, you know, you're in for like $100,000, you end up at the end of the night taking home two million. Well, it's not like you're going to get 
you know, however much money from every other player, it's Molly Bloom that's cutting you a check for that $2 million. If she doesn't actually have it, you know, then her reputation tanks. People don't want to play in her game. You know, some probably some bad people come after her. All kinds of things that are bad happen. So she takes that rake to mitigate that risk. But all of a sudden, according to the government, now she's being a bad guy. And it's all due to, you know, these ridiculous laws that government writes that are subjective and open to interpretation and not evenly enforced, right? I mean, this... They only they only came after her, even if she had been she'd been she ran a game in New York for six months where she took that rake because the stakes were so high because she wanted to increase the stakes to actually get, you know, these high profile people in to actually make the game work. Right. Well. Oh, crap, I just had a total brain fart. Where was I going with that? (laughs) (laughs) So she's trying to raise the stakes high enough to make it attractive to players, right? To get the, enough juice into the game. But in doing so, she was extending too much credit. And maybe that was her mistake. That was the thing that she was doing that she shouldn't have, that sort of backed her into the corner of needing to take the rake. But I think our point was the ridiculousness of all of a sudden it's illegal because she's charging a fee or a portion of the pot. Right. And the only reason the government came after her in the first place was just because she was connected to all these other people that were they were that they were actually going after. It wasn't that, you know, she was breaking the law and they were like, oh, my God, this woman is out of control. We need to stop her. So many people are getting hurt, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, if we get to her, that gets us to all these other people. And oh, by the way, look at that on the books. Looks like she technically broke some law. Ha ha. Let's get her so that we can get these other guys. Let's shake the tree and see who falls out. That's that's all they were going for. And, th- and that really comes true at the end of the movie when they're just like, oh, there are these hard drives with all this dirty information on them. We'll give you total immunity. We'll drop all charges. We'll give you all the money back we stole from you <laughs> in exchange for this these hard drives. It's just a, it's a shakedown. It's extortion by the government to, you know, get what they want. It's not that you're this horrible person and they're really doing a public service by bringing you down. She hadn't even been running the game for two years. So it's like she became a target due to the connections she had with these other people, not because she herself was this, you know, dangerous person right and not only that but they thought that she was more involved with them than she was due to the mistake of her name and them not realizing that they're talking about the drug molly instead of the person molly because their wiretaps or whatever surveillance they kept saying molly's name they're like oh she must be really involved with these people if they keep mentioning her all right (laughs) smooth so classic but yeah, it was uh, it was a really bizarre situation, and you know she pointed it out pretty well. I mean, there's a few moments in here where you're just like, "Holy shit!" You know, like they're making they, they they go out of their way to back you into a corner. And I know we, we just talked about she got backed in a corner on her own terms, like needing to do the rake because she was extending too much credit. But when they arrest her, they take all of her money. They millions of dollars, millions of dollars. They give her two like days, four million dollars. They stole out of her bank accounts. Right. And then middle of the night, you know, 
uh, they make her show up on the other side of the country like in two days to arraign her. And they do everything they can to make sure that she doesn't have the capacity nor the time to arrange her own defense. Right. And they even mentioned that 99% of uh, charges um, get pled down to uh, you know lesser charges and then you plead guilty. When in those 1% of cases that actually go to a jury trial, they were saying something like 80% um, are found innocent. So it's they, they really do whatever they can to stack it in their favor and to basically bully you into accepting their um, their offers, right? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And, and because she ends up pleading guilty, even though, and because the, the judge is like, this is ridiculous. Look at these charges. And he's like anti-Wall Street. So he's like, look at Wall Street. These guys commit more felonies, you know, before breakfast than she has in her entire life. But, you know, she, because she pleads guilty, he, you know, gives her like 200 hours of community service, finds her $200,000. But because of that, she's now a felon. She can't possess a firearm. She can't vote. Not that I give a shit about that. Yeah, I'm kind of still. okay with that one. No one should. Yeah. <laughs> right. Nobody should have that power, but whatever. And also she can't go to Canada for some reason. I don't know, but... But because of just because of that, right? Because she pleads guilty, now she's a, a technically a convicted felon, even if the uh, punishment was only community service. Yeah, and I and know that's what happens to people all over the world, or not necessarily all over the world, but in, you know, I'm sure in other systems too. But we're, I'm only really familiar with the United States system, where most they absolutely say and it's probably a little extreme in her case. Most situations don't involve you flying across the country in the middle of the night or whatever, but. They absolutely do, and at every level, incentivize you to plea down. Just plead guilty to a lesser charge. You'll get a slap on the wrist and be on your way. But that gets you in the system. You're now a felon. And because of that, you know, all this stuff happens to you. But it's better than the, you know, trying to fight it, which is going to bankrupt you. You know, it, it's a lot of, a lot of innocent people. And innocent, even in this corrupt system with all these bullshit laws, um, end up, you know, getting in the system because it's just less of a hassle. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I know we're jumping uh, to the end of the movie already, but the movie did a fair amount of jumping around in time as well, which uh, uh, foreshadowing, we're going to be doing that in a couple of weeks here. But the... Um, the other insult to injury was the money they took from her in the civil asset forfeiture, which is basically they just take your money because they can, and you have really no recourse to get it back. And there's there was a recent case just a few weeks ago where that's now been questioned or, or a limitation has been put on that. forget exactly where, but uh, I'll try to find it and post it on the show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 86. But they not only took the money, but then the IRS came after her to pay taxes on the money that they took. Yeah, all the more reason to hold physical gold and silver and other things. <laughs> because you just stuff all your money in a bank and government banks are all too happy to just hand that shit over to the government. All right. So, Robert, I think you had a couple of things that you wanted to make sure that we cover and, and maybe maybe set the scene a little bit about the movie itself. We did the Google description a little but maybe take us through it just a bit and then uh, work in your points. Okay. Well, 
she starts off um, meeting this dude in a bar where she's like a waitress. And it's like a high-end nightclub. And she's wearing like commie fatigues is like the get up. Like Che Guevara style. And she meets this guy who wants to have her be his like assistant. So she's sleeping on a friend's couch and, you know, getting the guy bagels and whatnot. But it turns out that he plays in this weekly poker game with all these big wig dudes. And so she kind of learns all she can to you know, run this game. And apparently the one guy, player X, as she calls him, played by, help me, what was the guy's name? Michael Sarah, uh, Super bad. Michael Sarah, Super bad guy, yeah. But it's apparently played based, by Sarah. based on um, Tobey Maguire, the Spider-Man. Exactly. Based on Tobey Maguire. And uh, apparently he was playing a lot of uh, poker games. Not just this, but not just like in the high stakes games and whatnots, but also like playing like in Vegas tournaments and that sort of thing back at the time. I don't know if he still does, but um, he's kind of portrayed as like a jerk in this film. And apparently that's kind of his M.O. Apparently um, on the set of Spider-Man, Spider-Man 3, like nobody liked him. And um, like a bunch of people in the crew kind of like hired the actor who played Flash Thompson to actually hurt him during their scenes. Wow. But uh, he ended up not doing it because he didn't want to get fired. So I guess that's that's fairly accurate. I guess Toby McGuire can be a bit of a dick. So what are you going to do? Um, so at one point, though, the she's doing really well. She's getting like these thousands of dollars in tips each week from these guys because they're tipping her um, after the game. And Dean's like, you know, the housing market's crashing. I'm doing really poorly. Or no, she, she made the point that the housing market's going down. So this is right around 2007, 2008. And so Dean's like, well, I'm not going to pay you anymore for your, you know, regular assistant work for like 450 bucks a week. And she's like, why not? And he's like, well, you're making so much more money at this poker game. So, you know, it's like nothing to you. She's like, yeah, but I don't want to pick up your dry cleaning for free. And he's like, well, you have to do both jobs or else you're going to lose the game. So she's like, well, screw you. And she had all the information on all the act, you know, the, the players. So she just sets up her own game. And yeah, she moves it to like a, a hotel. She assumes all this risk. She basically spends every penny she has to like hire, you know, workers and a table and hire a dealer and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's successful. Well, you know, I want to I want to interject just for a moment here. During during that negotiation with Dean, who is kind of an asshole, and he called them um, Negro bagels or poor people bagels. Yeah, uh, he said to her, "You don't have any bargaining power here." And I just thought that that was a jab at this pro union jab. You know, like that the capitalist exploiter has all of the negotiating power, and the lowly worker has none. Mm. And it uh, just kind of pissed me off. But then she sort of steals the game from him. Yeah. In a, in a way. Now, I know that it's not, you know, like his property, right? Like your profits aren't guaranteed. Um, like if a, if a store opens up across the street from you, 
that may harm your business, but you have really no recourse. Like they didn't commit any aggression against you. Yeah, she wasn't forcing every all the players to come play at her game. But it she was, was just inviting them to. It was a little shady though, because she fraudulently provided false phone numbers to the new person who was taking over the invitation thing. Yeah, what did you think about that? I didn't have a problem with that at all. I mean, yeah, she did lie, but I, I don't think she's under any kind of ob, you know positive obligation to give her actual numbers. Did you? Well, I mean, they asked, of course, for the actual numbers, um, and and didn't believe, didn't think that she would give them false information. But she right. had been fired at that point, so yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a fuck you, a little retaliation. <laughs> Yeah, and why doesn't he have the actual numbers on hand too? You know, why he, is he relying all on her? Yeah, you know what? That that's great. Yeah, that would have circumvented this whole thing because he provided the numbers to Molly originally. Yeah. And he's such a lazy fuck that yeah. he's like, All right, new assistant, just get the numbers from Molly and move along. And why wouldn't you do that before you fire her? That just makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a plot hole. But but when she does offer this new better product at the top of the four seasons, um, you know, it is a competition like, and, and those players could have gone back to Dean at the Viper club or wherever they were playing the Cobra lounge. Forget the name exactly. Yeah. I think that second thing you said was right. Um, but the player X, uh, the Tony McGuire guy played by Michael Sarah, he was like, no, we're good here. Let's play. You know? So the, they were a little bit like deceived a bit, but then they were kind of okay with it. I mean, they had this nice posh, layout at the top of the four seasons beautiful view professional dealer nicer environment all that stuff yeah they're like hey this is this is better maybe this is cool and maybe i don't like dean so much maybe i like molly better than i like dean maybe it maybe it pays to be nice sometimes <laughs> yeah it seems to occasionally um and then uh let's see i have a note in here about don't break the law when you're breaking the law and I think that was related to make sure that, you know, while you're doing something that might be somewhat suspicious or draw attention from law enforcement types, don't do anything that is explicitly illegal in the process of doing it. So don't, you know, be dealing with drugs or prostitution or other things that should all not be, you know, <laughs> illegal anyway, but they happen to be. Um, and I think this was her lawyer's advice, right? Make sure you're not doing anything that will actually get you in trouble. Yeah, even though I have zero problems with anything she does in this film, like morally, like I, I don't think it's a good idea to get addicted to drugs and whatever. And you're probably, you know, hanging out with people who are murderers. But, you know, uh, people think politicians are great and hang out with politicians all the time. And uh, I don't know. Um, I did have one note here. Where um, apparently in the law, it's written that, you know, if you take a rake on a game of chance, it's illegal or something like that. And so Molly says, no, 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 it's not a game of chance. It's a game of skill. And I would say that both are correct and incorrect. It's not just a game of skill and it's not just a game of chance. It's both. It's a game of chance that is mitigated by skill. You can lower the, you know, the risk by having increased skill 
but you can't eliminate it entirely. Of course, there's it's, you're dealing with a random deck of cards that are randomly dealt. It's it's not. There's nothing you can do. Sometimes, sometimes you get your money in good, and you still lose. You know, on a two percent chance. It's just it, it happens. Well, as we saw with um, Bad Brad winning against Harlan, just accidentally. Uh, and Harlan was a decent player. He 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 knew what he was doing. He was cool, calm, collected, very calculating, very conservative. He would win a lot. Um, no, Bad Brad um, bluffed Harlan. It right. was the other guy. It was the um, like the prince or something that that uh, got lucky with running kings. Oh, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. There were like two things. One one set him off down this downward spiral, and one finished him off. Yeah, Bad Brad set him, tilted him. And he was like, oh, you just totally bluffed me when I had a full house, queens over eights or whatever. Queens over nines. And then he goes on Bender where he's losing $1.2 million. And the final capper is this big pot against this like prince guy from Monaco or whatever, where um, the guy hits running kings. So that's running Kings is less than a 1% chance. Right. So, so if we were super lucky, if we were watching world series of poker, like the, the percentages would have been all right. Harlan is at 99%. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, running the two cards in the deck that he could have hit. He hits, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well, two out of three, I think two out of three. Because he had king, ace, king versus pocket queens, and it was queen something, something. Anyway, I forget exactly, but yeah, it was an insanely tiny percentage chance of actually winning. And yeah, he got super unlucky. But um, that game was interesting, not only for the um, the Harlan guy, but I thought the bad Brad guy was really interesting. That he was losing on purpose. That he didn't give a shit because he was actually just making business connections and hanging out with people that had money to gamble, basically, of course. And so he's like, well, hey, why not invest in my hedge fund? By the way, it's a Ponzi scheme. I'm not going to tell you that part. But go ahead and I'm going to lose money here and you know, sign you up to my hedge fund where I'm actually, I actually, even though I'm a bad poker player, I'm a really good hedge fund manager, supposedly. So you can uh, go ahead and invest with me and feel good about it. Yeah, that was actually really interesting. And it, it played into why Harlan couldn't read him because he was so bad and so didn't care that he didn't display any signs of stress when he had nothing, when he's bluffing, you know, like if, if, if it had been a legitimately good player who knew what he was doing, he would have been having a tell, right? But bad Brad had no tell because he didn't even know what he had. And even if he did have some kind of inkling about what he did, it just didn't matter to him. He came there specifically to lose money to engender friendships, to get people's business. He wasn't trying to, he wanted people to have a good, you know, view of him. Like, as in, I'm glad you're here at the table. Let me win some money off you. But in reality, he's the one taking the money off of them. Right, It's right. really, you know, it's like the hunter becoming a hunter. I thought it was genius. Even though he was a scam artist, obviously, and stealing people's money, he's a terrible person. But, I mean, I mean com completely committed fraud. Yeah, but it was his uh his 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 lost leader, you know? It was getting them in the door. And yeah, yeah it was uh it was brilliant. And I, I think that someone could employ that portion of the strategy in other areas and and provide a legitimate service and actually do very well with a strategy like that.
Absolutely. If, let's say that Brad wasn't just a Ponzi scheme guy, but an actual hedge fund manager. That's a great way to actually get customers. I thought it was fantastic. Right. And then Molly was making a point that, you know, the people who are playing this game are the elite, most accomplished people in the world of business, Hollywood, sports, etc. And something to the point of they wanted to be involved in something that they had to work really hard at to try to win. Right. Yeah. You can't just buy your way to victory in poker. I mean, you can have you can have more chips than the other guy and you can kind of bully people around, but you're dealing, you're playing against other millionaires. So eventually it comes down to your skill versus their skill. You can't just, you know, buy pay to win, so to speak. So that was really uh an interesting, you know, it's what's why those sorts of games really appeal to those people. Yeah, so right, I, I, I agree. Yeah, circle gets the square. Mm, mm, mm. So <clears throat> we also have a dabble into psychology in this film when we talk about the relationship with Kevin Costner, the father, who's apparently the father in lots of movies these days. He was uh, Kent He's in Superman's uh, father, yeah, Superman's dad. And Molly Bloom's dad, and uh, probably know, a bunch of others. Whitney Houston's dad in <laughs> the Bodyguard. No, he was the bodyguard. He wasn't the dad. <laughs> but uh, it was it was uh, kind of interesting at the end how you know she's going through all this stuff with uh, James Bond, Idris Elba. He's going to be Bond, right? That's what I heard. Some rumor. Uh, there's been rumors of him doing it, but no. Now the new Bond is a female Bond. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's, he's long been rumored to take up that mantle. I wouldn't be too surprised if he did it at some point, but he is getting older. It'll have to happen within the next 10 years, I would imagine. Right, I think Unless he'd actually like be pretty, pretty good. And, and not in the, you know, hey, we, we need to spice things up by changing colors and genders of well-known characters. I just mean I think he's a pretty intense and uh, good actor. You know, oh, yeah. I think I'm a... I'm a fan of his on The Wire. I mean, and in this movie and in most movies, he has a certain, definitely has a certain presence to him. I think he had, that he could pull off a bond for sure. Right. So what the fuck was I talking about? Oh, yeah. So, so Elba's talking to the um, prosecutor after their <laughs> exposure in the Molly situation. <laughs> yeah. And he's trying to work a, a deal and he tells Molly to head on out and go, go, go grab a bite to eat, whatever. Uh, while they chat and she goes to the skating rink in central park and for whatever reason has flashbacks acid flashbacks to skiing down the hill and having her bad accident which was horrific by the way <laughs> uh, as depicted in the film but um she's like trying to get the the guys to chase her or whatever who are running the rink and they're like hey you're going too fast slow down she's like fuck you guys catch me and then her dad just happens to be on the sideline and spooks her and she crashes into somebody and I, I was like what the fuck why is her dad there just magically did that bother you well it it struck me as a screenwriter's convention like obviously this event didn't happen but i kind of need this scene for what i want this movie to be about so i'm gonna have her dad magically be there and just like he's so in tune with her psychology that he knows where she's going to be. He's just uh, that good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it bothered me as a real point of realism, but I do recognize that this movie is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, 
when you anytime you retell like some sort of biography, you're going to condense things. You're going to you know give lines to some characters and not others. Not even condense different characters down into a single character. You know you're gonna do all that because you know the actual story is just way too complicated and have way too many characters in it, and you know wouldn't be a cohesive film. Um, so in that sense, I gave it a pass, but yeah, I understand any kind of, anybody that had a real problem with that scene would be like, really, really? He's there just magically when she just on a lark happens to go to the ice skating rink and trade her thousands of dollars worth of, uh, gloves for, uh, an hour's rental of some skis or whatever, $800 or whatever it was. Yeah. For skates. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and this whole like, um, plot line I could have done without. I mean, the I, dad. I, yeah, and I like Kevin Costner, and I don't mind seeing him in a movie. But it's already a two-hour and twenty-minute movie, and then you you kind of shoehorn in this teen angst that she didn't understand why she was angstful against her dad, and he finally figured it out. It was because when she was five, she saw him doing something, and she didn't realize what she had seen, and that tainted their relationship with her growing up because she was unaware that she was aware that he had been uh, inf- in having infidelity against his mother, like cheating on his mother or her mother, her mother. Yeah. Yeah. And so this all gets, you know, pieced together. Like here's three years worth of <laughs> psychology in, in, in three minutes. minutes, three minutes, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like, why did you push me and didn't like me as much as my brothers? And it was all because he, he felt this guilt that she knew. And so he treated her worse without really realizing it. And maybe there's something to that kind of thing, but I just felt like, why are you telling me this in this movie? Yeah, the movie did certainly try to be, tried to have a heart instead of just being like a dry retelling of, you know, this lady's, you know, gambling ring slash trial. Um, and maybe it was a little bit crammed in there. And maybe it didn't fit super well. I thought it was a, it seemed like as maybe a little bit clunky way to, you know, address that sort of stuff. I mean, I guess the movie wanted to explain why she was so driven to do what she did. And I don't necessarily need, know you need to have that. I, I feel like you could take this story and tell it any number of different ways, but, um, what was his name? The director Sorkin. Sorkin. Yeah. And he's, he's a very dialogue heavy guy. Yes. He he's done a lot of good stuff. Um, I generally like his stuff. Not that I could name one of his movies off the top of my head, but I bet you if you read me a list, I'd go, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. I'll read you his list. Molly's Game. Okay, go ahead. Molly's Game. What? He has one credit? This is his directorial debut. Okay, well, he's written stuff then. And he's done a bunch of uh, television shows. He did uh, The West Wing. Oh, he's the West Wing guy. Okay. I was thinking of somebody else. Huh. Okay. Well, anyway. Uh, I feel like you could tell this story any number of different ways, um, you know, focusing or non-focusing on different areas of her life. But well, I, I didn't mind this. the way he did it so much. Riddle I mean, me this. Having this. Well, having this driven, you know, ex-Olympian, you know, that goes on to basically succeed at, at all costs, sort of, is is a kind of an interesting story. Well, riddle me this, Robert. What is mm. what is the story? Because by the time I'm done watching this, yeah, I'm like, okay, wh- why did I what watch fuck, this? What was that about? 
<laughs> well, it's true. The um, the finale is very kind of not very you know exciting. It's kind of a letdown. I wouldn't say it's very climactic. It's like they're they're at the trial, and then the three judges just like, yeah, never mind. This is dumb. But they Get still fuck here. her over. Oh yeah, they still fuck her over, and which is why you know I thought it was interesting from a libertarian standpoint to talk about how the government basically kneecaps her, robs her, you know, and then still fucks her over in the end. And then she feels, you know, thankful to them somehow. Right. Right. And that's how the government does it. Right. Like we could have fucked you over way worse. You should be grateful for us. Yeah. This is like, like no, that, you fucking trash. That great Harry Brown quote where uh, government is, you know, where they, they break your legs and then offer you a pair of crutches and you're supposed to be and then, thankful. You know, yeah. then you wouldn't be able to walk without, if not for us. Yeah, so you know, it's that it's just that classic action of this is what the government does all the time, and yet it still gets a pass, right? I mean, it's never they don't get called out for the ex, the extortion and the thuggery that they carry out on a daily basis, right? But it's then, like people feel thankful for them. But I mean, why you watched the movie? What was this movie about? Um. It was a driven woman's, uh, uh, you know, interesting, you know, career choice path. And then celebrities, uh, celebrity and then uh, legal trouble. I don't know. Drugs. I've seen I've seen worse biographies. Drugs and money. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you saw it and recommended it a, a couple of weeks ago. And I, I was going into this thinking, oh, it must be pretty good. And then uh, we watched the first half two nights ago and then the second half last night because you know we're old and fuddy-duddy and we can only <laughs> keep our old eyes open for so long and i think i messaged you the other night and i was like halfway through convoluted so far not sure what's going on with the... and then you finished it and then did you get a better did you feel better about it or no i mean it makes more sense but i, I just don't know why it's a story like i i in the in the movie they say she wrote the book to try to earn some money because they'd taken all of her money and she needed some way to pay off some debts or whatever. And so that's why a book exists. Why a movie exists on that book, I don't know. Mm. Like I don't well, know. Well, she had five offers, apparently, to turn it into a movie. Right, right. And only if she would spill the beans, spill the dirt, all the dirt. And so I guess that goes into what was your perception of her her character, what she was made of? Like she well, thought seemed to have certain had... principles that she was not going to deviate from. Yeah. Cause she was worried about, you know, she recognized that her, her reputation, her name was super important. Because it stood for something in yeah. the relationships she had with the people that participated in her game. The, yeah, she the, the, was their confidant. Right. Like, like, imagine if you went to uh, and she basically kind of operated as a, um, a shrink, right? I mean, if you went to a, a shrink and then you found out later that the shrink was blabbing your stories all around town and that shrink would be ruined, right? No one would ever go to that shrink again. She, she kind of operated like that. Not only did she have inside dirt on all these high profile people that would totally destroy and ruin them totally. I mean, there'd be scandal after scandal after scandal. I mean, you know. Right, but but Nash. but those people did those things that are scandalous. Not her. She didn't do those things. Correct. She's like she feels like at one point she says that she felt guilty 
for making money off of gambling addicts. And I, I quibble with that. I mean, you could say, you know, then what beer makers are morally responsible for people who buy, you know, alcoholics, alcohol producers are morally problem. You know, or, or, this is the people who blame me on gun manufacturers for gun deaths. Exacto mundo. Yep. Yeah. I mean, but yet, you know, nobody blames Ford for, you know, automobile deaths. I don't I don't know why some manufacturers get a pass and others don't. I don't understand it entirely. But all I know is that the government gets a blank check for everything, no matter how many people die. <laughs> they, oh, did you got, did you see the tweet today from uh, Sanders, Bernie Sanders? What genius did that genius speak about? He said that the CEOs of fossil fuel oil companies should be held criminally responsible <laughs> for the catastrophic damage they have caused the environment. Do they also get? Um, all the accolades for all the energy that they've provided. That was my comment in the uh, Tom Woods group. I was like, so what about all the people's millions of people's lives who have been improved <laughs> as a, as a, yeah. you know, an abundant source of cheap energy. Yeah. All the, all the people that are able to travel to a job, you know, in their cars, all the people that are able to heat their homes cheaply, you know, well, I mean, this is ridiculous. They get all the blame and none of the, I mean, they get the benefit of, you know, the money, which is the signal from the market saying, good job. But then you get hucksters like Sanders virtue signaling about how evil you are for providing all this value to the market. Uh, he, he can get fucked. I think they're getting desperate. All those uh, Democratic candidates, they're trying to out socialism each other, you know? And out virtue signal each other and out, um, what is it, the uh, oppression Olympics, you know? Like, Sanders can't win because he's a white guy. He's an old white man, old rich white guy. And right. According to his own philosophy that he adheres to, he should step aside so that, like, Kamala Harris or should uh, can get go ahead, you know? I mean, if, if he's going to be consistent, I know four years ago or three, yeah, four years ago, you know, during the run-up to the other election— that was a time when apparently it was still acceptable for a man like him to run, but now it doesn't seem like it's so acceptable on the social no, level. Gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they've gone so far to the left that they just keep trying to outleft each other. Right, and this isn't and my opinion. I, I don't think anyone should run. <laughs> well, it's just, I think it's setting up for another Trump victory. I can't imagine that the mainstream America is going to vote for whoever super ultra lefty comes out of the democratic nomination. I think it's going to hinge on where the economic indicators seem to be blowing at the time. Maybe. Cause he's got to, Trump is going to wear whatever the economy is on his chest. He has right, right. He has taken ownership of it stupidly, probably, but I mean, in a in a world where the Fed can like the Fed chair can come out and make one statement and essentially crash the economy, <laughs> right? Now it is potentially seventeen D chess. I don't know how much I ascribe to that, but he does seem to do some three or four level moves occasionally, and he has been starting to throw the Fed under the bus recently. I heard something the other day where he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, the, we could be doing so much better, but the Fed won't lower interest rates." 
<laughs> which is more of of the wrong thing, but it sort of yeah, artificially s- inflate more. Right. There but it go. sort of sets up that fall guy position, you know? Right, right. No, he is digging the foundation for an escape plan. Right. Uh, some kind of a fall guy to be like, yeah, if only they had not, you know, done what I said, you know, six months ago and we wouldn't be in this situation. But I don't know if it'll be enough. It's possible. Yeah. It'll it'll be interesting. I mean, it, it's uh, Murray Rothbard. He was a big you know fan of um, the entertainment value of politics. You would pay attention to it and, of course, laugh at them. Uh, and so I, I get that. I mean, you and I, we went back and forth on election night 2016, and we were just amazed at the entertainment value provided therein. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you can't well, laugh at this stuff, then you're just going to be depressed about it. Yeah, exactly. It's a big giant dog and pony show. And even though it's all, you know, the mafia trying to explain why, you know, the mafia is fantastic and why everybody needs the mafia or else, you know, the world just doesn't work without the mafia. Um, it's still, it's endlessly fascinating. Like I like mafia movies. I love the Sopranos. It is fascinating to see psychopaths try and explain why they're you know humanitarians and but the fact that that uh, you know the average person just eats it up with a spoon or is like you barely paying attention and just goes along with it you know it's uh, it is saddening like Pro- you said either you either laugh at it or you cry yeah it's problematic now, you mentioned the mafia, so that will bring us right back into the movie. When Molly loses the game in L.A. because, uh, what's his bucket, basically screws her out of it. And I forget exactly why. I think she called him out on something because he was financing another player at the game and had the potential of impropriety. And he didn't. Well, let's talk about that real quick. Okay. Because I wrote, I wrote a big old note about that. So this all stems from when Harlan loses the $1.2 million. She's like, he goes, he goes to Molly and he's like, I don't have it. And she's like, well, we'll figure this out. Don't worry, Harlan. Just go home and talk to your wife. And, you know, a couple days later, he shows up with a check and he's like, here you go. It's fine. And she finds out that it was Toby Maguire that had loaned him the 1.2 million. And she's like, well, why did you do that? And he's like, well, you know, I get 50% of his wins, of his winnings until it's paid off. And then 50% of his winnings for the next two years with no exposure on any losses. And then Molly complains about this. She's like, that's sharecropper math. That's usury and racketeering. And <laughs> I, I, I'm really annoyed at um, anybody who complains about usury. First of all, usury is just your reward. I mean, you're, you're accepting a whole bunch of risk when you're loaning money to somebody. So why shouldn't you get something in return for that risk you're taking? Well, the time value of the money as well. And, and usury in the common parlance is just an excessive amount of interest. Some's okay. I mean, it used to be that usury meant any amount of interest was illegal. So what, what would usury be then? I mean, this is some sort of weird subjective bullshit number then just make up some number yeah i think so i think in molly's opinion 50 percent of wins and no exposure to losses was excessive and she was saying you know you could get better better deal than that on the street or something like that um 
So I think that's why she was pointing it out as usury. I think she would have yep. been okay with a certain amount of interest being charged, but she also had an issue with a participant who plays at the same table staking another player. Right. She was worried about any kind of collusion that could be happening. But to go back to the Harlan deal, and it's just a second, just for a second. Um, if Harlan could have had a better deal, he would have taken it. Timmy Bar didn't have to offer him that. And Harlan didn't have to accept that offer. Harlan could have gone to a bank, could have gone to anybody else. Asked for 1.2 million. He could have gone to Bad Brad. Could have gone to Bad Brad. Could have gone to anybody. Could have gone to Molly herself. But she's upset with Toby Maguire because he did it. And because of the, the terms of the deal, the terms of a deal are none of her business between Toby Maguire and Harlan. She can complain all she wants, but it's none of her damn business. Well, if she's now, gonna, if she's going to she, complain about that, though, then she needs to complain at her at her own self for continuing to re up him when he was sort of on his tilt bender. Right. Right. He was okay. not of sound mind when he was doing that. And she kept staking him and kept well, not staking him, but kept like letting him buy back in. On credit. Right. Now, yeah, she tried to stop him. But he was so insistent that she relented. But how is anything that she did that much different than what Toby Maguire did? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem with anybody doing any of that. It's, it's on Harlan, ultimately. It's, it's, he's a big boy. He's an adult. And yeah, he's probably not in the greatest frame of mind at that point. But neither Toby Maguire or Molly... Is Harlan's keeper? <laughs> they're not. They're not. They're not Harlan's mom and dad. <laughs> He's an adult. He could now, use a friend to like suggest. Maybe you don't do that. Right. He could definitely use a friend who's like maybe you shouldn't you know snort five lines of cocaine and get tilted on poker and lose a million dollars. You know that's probably a nice thing for a friend to do, but I'm not. I'm not saying that Toby Maguire and Molly are like terrible people in this instance. They are respecting him and his decision making. They can offer suggestions like, "Maybe this you don't seem like super great right now," but it's ultimately Harlan's responsibility to take care of Harlan. Do you think that maybe this is a cinematic device in that Molly did the same thing and she felt guilt for it, so she lashed out at Toby Maguire? And it's echoed later with the father in that situation. Yeah, I would say that. I, she feels guilty about, you know, supposedly making money off of gambling addicts. And this is one of the situations she feels badly about, enough to write in the book about it. Right. I mean, he, uh, the Harlan guy was like, two days prior to this happening, he was like all excited about his wife's birthday coming up, 40th birthday. And it was all this stuff was planned. And then he gets into this multi day string of, playing poker because he lost that hand to bad brad mm. he's like i gotta win it back i gotta win it back is, right. is that the gambler's um trap or what do you call that yeah that's pretty much it i'm due i'm due i'll i gotta just win i just gotta get back to even gotta get back to even i can do it yeah that's 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 why that's how casinos make their money because you know they take away the clocks and everything else and they cover the windows they don't have any windows, actually. So, yeah, they they want they just want you in their plane because they know ultimately the odds are in their favor. So, the longer they can keep you there. I mean, I, now, in a game of poker, though, I would say that that's less of the case. I think a skilled poker player can 
have a better chance of getting back to even than in just playing like slots or some table game like roulette or something like that. Right. But, uh, but Harlan in, in his case abandoned all of his principles, like all of his uh, normal capabilities of playing the game. Well, like he abandoned right. all and, of his strategies. Right. And the more and the more you go into the hole, the more you're looking for that one big score to get you back to even. Yeah. The so he's like run. basically, right. He's just, taking all kinds of crazy risks to try and get that one big hit back so they can go, oh, okay, and calm down and play back his normal game. But anyway, he's a big boy, but I think she had more of an interest in, or a, a better argument when she was talking about having, you know, a guy who was staking a player at the same table. Now, I think that happens quite a bit. I was watching a game, um, Triton, Triton poker. It's on YouTube. Um, they actually play short deck poker, which is really interesting. They take out one, two, they take out the twos, threes, fours, and I think fives. And so there's like all kinds of action. But anyway, like Tom Dwan was playing at a poker table with um, Jean Robert Balland and a bunch of other guys. I don't know if people may know these names. I don't know, but they're, they're kind of big names in the poker world. Anyway, these two guys, apparently uh, Dwan has staked Jean Robert like millions of dollars, like for years. And they were both playing at the same table. So I don't know how frowned on that is. Like, like McGuire's point of like, why would I, you know, give him information? Why would I take a dive just so that he could win a big hand? I mean, but to her argument, there is a chance, but I just don't think that there's a whole lot you can do about collusion in poker. I don't know. I, I, I I've always thought of like poker as like this kind of gentleman's game. And there's all these like this in gentleman's agreement that, you know, you're there honestly to play this game and you're not going to just try and cheat and, you know, that sort of thing. But right. Or there's an unwritten code like in uh, tombstone or in uh, the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. Yeah. There's like an unwritten code. And so, you know, when you see someone cheating, that's, that's a big deal. It's kind of, that's a big deal. If you find collusion happening, that's a big deal. And I, so I guess she's a little bit right to be upset, but I don't know necessarily what you could do to stop it. Um, and the idea that poker players, poker players stake each other, I guess, all the time. And it's not, not very, not uncommon for that to happen. So anyway. Okay. I'm going to loop this back around to uh, one more topic and then we'll probably need to do final summary review because we're already bumping up against time. Jiminy Christmas. Jiminy Christmas. So, Similar to the echo that we just talked about with Molly feeling the guilt for what she had done and then taking it out on someone else, and then that's echoed later with the father taking it out on Molly and their relationship. I think there's an echo with how the government treats Molly and how the mafia treats Molly. When she moved to New York... And she's doing well, but then she's got $2.8 million out there on the street that she staked out to people and not collected on. Those two uh, Italian mafia guys from Jersey come and meet her and offer to collect her debts for her using strong-arm te- techniques, right? Yeah. And she's like, oh, no, you know, I'm good. I- I'm-, I'm comfortable with having that much money out there. I'll-, I'll get it still. So no thank you. And they send this thug, goon guy, um, like big, tough, like old guy, to basically work her over. 
because she oh, yeah. denied their services, that they demanded that, that this was basically a message to her like, hey, you're going to work with us or bad things are going to happen. You're not going to get another warning. Just like the government. Exactly, right? And so I just saw that as like a little snippet of, you know, that five or 10 minutes portion of the movie was like an echo of the entire movie where the government comes after her, 17 agents, middle of the night, automatic weapons, pointed at her like she's some kind of a threat, you know? Um, yep. And then you've got this little, you know, five minutes with the Italian mafia guys offering her a service that she doesn't want to pay for, doesn't want. And they're like, no, you're you're going to get the service and you're going to pay for it, whether you like it or not. Yeah, man. It's a strong parallel. It's funny how the, um, the, the target of that whole investigation was the Russian mob. And she was like, well, the Russian mob never did anything mean to me at all. They seemed to be like nice people. I never knew they were in the mob. The Italian mob and the government on the other hand, yeah. I knew right away what they were about. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, one last question for you related to the, the mafia beating her up. When her dad found out about it by reading the book and at the magical scene where they're at the at the, the uh, skating rink. rink, he says, I want them to suffer. And she's like, no, no, you know, you know. And he like repeats it multiple, multiple times. Uh-huh. I know where he's coming from. Like if somebody did something to my kids... I don't know what you could do to get me to not wish harm on someone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I was 100% on board with Kevin Costner in that scene. Someone puts their hands on my daughter, beats the crap out of her, threatens to murder, sticks a gun in her mouth. Yeah, it's probably going to be the last thing that asshole ever does. I And I wouldn't feel bad about it in the slightest. If I'm going to hire somebody to find him, hire some guy to take him out, or even just make him suffer, torture him, whatever. I. And this is all hypothetical. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's hypothetical, of course. But you know, you go but, Liam Neeson, right? You go. Particular... You go Liam Neeson. I was asked. So you hire a guy with a particular set of skills. And, and you and you sleep better at night. And yeah, it probably increases the uh, the amount of sadness and violence in the world. But you're also sending a message. That, you know, don't fuck with me. You know, you, you don't go around attacking people. You know, we didn't start this. Right. Uh, yeah. Having the capacity to defend yourself means having power and the potential for danger, but that engenders respect. Yeah. I was listening to uh, the Babylon B podcast the other day and uh, they had Malice on. It's an older episode, but, you know, anything time Malice is on, I'm a, I'm a fan. And he was saying how you know, he's not this turn your other cheek kind of guy. He's like an eye for two eyes. <laughs> he's an eye for two eyes kind of guy. And that's kind of where I'm at, especially when it comes to my imaginary daughter. If my imaginary daughter is getting attacked and, you know, almost murdered and threatened with her life and whatnot by some mafia thug trash guy, I, yeah, I'm probably doing what I can to take his ass out and not feeling bad about it at all. And feeling like I did my job as a father to protect my family. Right. And that's what he's feeling, right? He's feeling like he failed as a father to protect his daughter. Right. After making a fine point about how she thought he was a bad dad, and he's like, well, I did raise a neurosurgeon and a three-time gold medalist skier. 
and you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it did okay. <laughs> um, and, and one last thing I want to loop back to is, is the uh, tweet about, you know, Bernie Sanders and, and liability for all the damage that's been done. And we talked about how people want to go after gun manufacturers and whatnot. And, and I guess there's a defense against that. Like they, they can't be held liable, but similar to the oil executives and making lives better. What about the three plus million instances per year that the CDC estimates of defensive uses of a, of a firearm uh, to prevent criminal activity or violence? You know, so you've got, you know, on the one side of the equation, everyone's hopping mad about the bad things that do happen. And yeah, bad things do happen and they are bad. I, the no disputing that. But there's an overwhelming amount of good that comes from those very same items. Yeah, this is just another case of, and it happens all over the time, all over the world, that anytime you get uh, a service or a, you know, a product that improves your life and you get used to a certain kind of lifestyle, right? You get used to, um, sorry about that. Um, hang on. You get used to a certain level and you get, you know, you get soft, you get, you get accustomed to it. Like you begin to expect it. Like I expect, you know, my life to be comfortable and never anything bad to happen and, you know, all this stuff. You know, if I get in a car accident, I don't expect to die because there's all these safety features and blah, blah, blah. But, sorry, I'm just getting uh, distracted by uh, shit. Um, well, yeah, so then the good things, the good things. Let's bring it home, Robert. Bring it home. Yeah, so, sorry. Sorry about that. So the good things get, you know, you get accustomed to them. You don't appreciate the good things in your life. You just You just point out the fewer and fewer bad things in your life, such as like manspreading and mansplaining and all this crap that people come up with to you know, explain how oppressed they are. It just, it just shows how decadent your life is that these few tiny, relatively small problems are such a big deal and you have so much free time to complain about them. It just shows how good you got it. Because if you if you didn't have it so good, you wouldn't have time to complain about all this crap. You'd be too busy scrapping and scraping, making a living. So thanks, capitalism. Indeed, sir. Well, why don't we slide right into the final summary and review? Let's do the flop. I flop the turn. Then the river. All right. So I don't think Molly's Game is the perfect movie. Um, I, I watched it and I enjoyed it enough to recommend it for the show. Because of you know, it just kind of illustrates how the government acts, how they're a bunch of thugs, and how they go after people because it's convenient to them, not because you know there's a real issue with these people being out on the street. They just you you get under the eye of Sauron, and they will fuck you over. They'll rob you, they will strip you, and they'll be like, oh, then by the way, you get the right to a speedy trial, so you know you have to appear in front of a judge in the other side of the country in two days oh and have a lawyer ready present you know all this crap um uh, i like dan said there are some issues with the story I, I don't like the magical scene but i appreciated for the most part um the heart of the film i i liked molly as a character 
Um, I didn't like, you know, all the people I wasn't supposed to like. Uh, yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Then it had then it involved poker, which I'm a huge fan of. I enjoy playing it. I enjoy watching it. Uh, so, you know, this is more of a homer type score for me because I enjoyed it. I don't think it has much replay value. I think once you've seen it once, I don't think you're going to go back to it. But for the first time watching, you know, it was a good movie. I'm going to give it like a seven. Just a flat seven. So. Lucky number seven for your game yeah, of chance. Baby. Yeah, baby. All right. Well, you know, I had higher expectations going into this, and that could be from the buildup based on the recommendation from my good friend Robert. But I found that it was a bit convoluted, hard to follow. Didn't really understand what the point of the story was. She kind of ends up getting screwed at the end anyway and somehow feels it's a victory, maybe because she got less screwed than she otherwise would have been. Uh, but it does show a determined woman who was going to be good at anything she focused on. And that is a big thing for me. I need to start focusing on things. Um, but it was serviceable. And I think that Aaron Sorkin, he does bring the, you know, the dialogue and, and Chastain, uh, the Molly's, uh, character. I, I enjoyed her. I thought that that was well portrayed. Idris Elba hit it out of the park. He's always good on screen. Even Kevin Costner was pretty good. So I, I think this is a movie that had really good elements to it. It just didn't come together for me. And it was a bit long and it had a little bit too much uh, weaving of extra storylines that didn't necessarily need to be there. But I guess it's supposed to like fill out like why this person is who she is. Why is she so driven? Why is she so principled? Why is she not willing to give anything up uh, to the government? Um, even if it's information that they already had. You know, like... In her book, she named four names, but she only named the four names that were already exposed out in the world from the Bad Brad deposition. And so she she could use those ones only uh, and still maintain her principles. So, I don't know, it gave us plenty to talk about, but I, like you said, I don't think it's something I'd ever watch again. So I'm going to go with a six on this bad boy. That's a fair score. Yeah. It's respectable. It's above average. You know, it's not great, but for what it was i thought it was uh, plenty good and it gave us a good discussion agreed sir well next week we promise to have an even better good discussion with our buddy mike c talking about the warriors come out and play yay hopefully mike c will dress up also i want um someone looking really tough and intimidating right and we will get our video working for next time for our patreon supporters so do check that out at lastnighters.com slash patreon uh, get us at, I think, the 5 or $10 level per month, and you will be able to witness it live and on video and see Robert's uh, pre-Halloween costumage. Oh, man, I look so tough in this in this jacket. You don't even know. <laughs> Do you look Nick, Nick Gillespie tough, leather jacket style? Uh, I'm like Nick Cage. Oh, like in Ghost yeah. Rider? Yeah, Ghost Rider. One of the style. worst movies ever made, I might yeah, add. Right. Looking tough. <laughs> All right, well, that's all the time we have tonight on The Last Nighters. We'll be back next week with The Warriors. If you like what we do here, do check us out on iTunes and give us a re review or a rating. Uh, subscribe on the old YouTubes and uh, send us all your money over at Patreon. Check it out at lastnighters.com slash 86 for show notes and more, and also find it at the Launchpad Media. Good night from last night, everyone.
just a few more minutes on the Actual Anarchy podcast. Robert's blowing up. He's got all sorts of messages and notifications. Oh, phone calls yeah. happening, so I know he's got something else uh, he's got to do. And the battery on the device that I'm using to record our audio, which, by the way, should be much, much cleaner and crisper than all of our other audios ever before. What? I know. It's going to be high-end shit. And by shit, I mean supremo shit. Our content is shit, but uh, the battery on this is getting super, super low. So we probably don't have time to do Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is just, just fine. Uh, we didn't have live stream, and and we'll have very little pre-show and post-show content for everyone. But I promise we'll make it up to you next week when we do Warriors with Mike C. Yeah, Mike C is a guy that can get damn verbose. He's a very smart individual, and he can speak. So we'll be giving it to you hard and long all night long and uh he'll have an interesting story because apparently the local theater to him was doing a uh what do you call it like a um a a throwback um thursday or whatever where they were going to show an old movie and warriors was one of them and he went to it and he didn't stay and watch it and we'll find out why next week Mm. on the next episode of the price is right i mean actual anarchy podcast i like that a little tease for the next week. I like it. That's right. So come back, join us next week. You can find the show notes some more for this one at actualanarchy.com slash 143. And uh, do share it around with your friends and uh, loved ones. Uh, probably the last night's version, right? It's a little less scary in the name. But uh, we do appreciate you guys being our listeners. Uh, give us some feedbacks and reviews and all that stuff. Um, and just so you know, just throwing it out there, there's about a 1,000 of you so far. So that's pretty good. We're one of the bigger shows in the world. Um but all the all the ones that are that were bigger than, uh, you've never heard of. So we're just on the cusp of being heard of. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Yeah, so it's good stuff. So anyway, um, thank you guys for listening, and thank you Robert for being our guest tonight in the hot seat for mm. Molly's game. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, you're welcome, and uh, we'll see you guys all next week. Maximum freedom, everyone. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.